Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 266, The Rise of Athelflaed and the Breaking of Northumbria. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to an episode on the daily lives of the Scandinavians. Have you ever wondered what the Vikings ate? Or what past is Viking fashion? Well, we're covering that and so much more in episode 16 of the members-only series, Fury of the Northmen. And you can get instant access to that series and all the other members' extras by signing up for a membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jeremy, Aaron, and Amy for signing up already. The Battle of Tenton Hall, as we discussed last episode, in many respects remains a mystery to us. We aren't certain of the circumstances that started the battle, exactly where the battle took place, nor which Anglo-Saxon leaders actually fought in it. But one thing scholars agree upon is that Mercia and Wessex won a resounding victory, and that this victory meant that the Danes were in for more war. At the time, Tettenhall may have felt like just one more battle, but it was about to set off a cascading chain of events that will eventually lead to the formation of England. Because that battle, even though it's just lightly mentioned in the Chronicle, would go on to cause a tectonic shift in the balance of power between the Anglo-Saxon and the Danish kingdoms in Britain. To begin to understand this domino effect, you have to know that this defeat was catastrophic for Northumbria. In a single battle, they had lost two of their kings and a whole host of supporting nobles. The impact of that cannot be overstated. Now, Northumbria has been fractured for a very long time. It began even before the conquest of Ethelwich and its renaming to Jorvik. And you know by now that this kingdom has been the stage where various warlords and dynasties have fought and died in their efforts to establish supremacy. And this legacy pretty much goes all the way back to Northumbria's founding. And it's something that continued even after the great army seized the kingdom and Halfdan began sharing out lands. And as a consequence of all of that, unified rule in Northumbria during this era was rare, and it may not have really happened at all. I mean, that's probably why we see both Anglo-Saxon and Danish lords, and even kings during this period. It's also why we keep reading of multiple kings in Northumbria, and why we're always in this situation where we have to ask ourselves, is this king a real king, or is he a king the way that Elvis was a king? But this fight at Tenton Hall changed all that. The slaughter that happened at that battle, the deaths of large numbers of all those petty warlords and their supporters, had the effect of eliminating large numbers of the aristocracy in Northumbria. And by doing that, the Mercian West Saxon army accidentally did a couple things. First, it delivered the final death blow to Northumbria. Any dream that Northumbria had of regaining its dominance ended here. Tettenhall was a defeat that was so devastating that the kingdom of Northumbria never truly recovered from it. But the other effect that this battle had was that the Mercian West Saxon army also accidentally created a power vacuum in the north. The thing is that while Northumbria was fractured, it also was densely populated with ambitious and violent lords. And that made assuming complete control of that region fairly difficult for anyone inside the kingdom and damn near impossible for anyone outside of it. 
But the funny thing is that this chaos was so consistent in its history that it created its own kind of strange stability. As a Northumbrian, you were always going to be ruled by some violent backstabbing usurper, but it probably was going to be one of your violent backstabbing usurpers. But now, after that battle, large numbers of those blood-drenched lords were dead. And so suddenly, Northumbria has a chance to be united under a single warlord, provided, of course, that one came forward and seized the opportunity. And the British Isles during this era just happened to be full of ambitious warlords just like that. And this would actually be a problem for Mercy and Wessex. By creating this vacuum, they've unwittingly created precisely the opportunity that the Northmen across the Irish Sea were waiting for. While Northumbria was a problem, it was always fractured, and so it probably was never able to truly marshal its full power. But in over just a handful of years from this point, we're going to see the rise of a true kingdom of Jorvik. And that rise begins ultimately here at Tetton Hall. So looking at it, the implications of this battle and the effect it has on the politics of Northumbria tend to be pretty obvious. But this battle also had an enormous impact on the politics in the south. Now, think about what Northumbria represented south of the Humber. Even before Halfdan and his great army arrived, Northumbria has been a threat to the kingdoms in the south. Wars, assassinations on Easter, harboring enemies. The general policy of Northumbria was... If their behavior annoyed their southern neighbors, they were into it. And this only intensified with the rise of the Danish kingdoms. I mean, how often have we seen Northumbrian armies marching or sailing in to support a Danish army? Virtually any time there's been a large-scale military operation in the south, you have Northumbrian armies making an appearance. And, as often as not, the East Anglian forces were right alongside them. In fact, East Anglia has even gone so far as to operate as a base of operations for many of the Danish incursions into the south. And those two kingdoms have been so aggressive towards the south that they even got involved in internal Anglo-Saxon wars, including Athelwald's rebellion against his cousin, Edward. So the threat that East Anglia and Northumbria posed was significant. And a big part of that had to do with the fact that they often backed each other up in war. And that threat was compounded by the fact that East Anglia was right on the border of Wessex and Mercia. So essentially, it was a frontier kingdom for any further Danish conquest. Consequently, if the kingdoms in the south wanted any degree of stability, East Anglia needed to be dealt with. Furthermore, because of its position, any war that they might want to take to reassert Anglo-Saxon rule over the eastern kingdoms would have to start there. To do anything else would provide the Northmen with a staging ground that was dangerously close to the power centers of the South. But, thus far, Mercia and Wessex haven't been able to do much to curb the power of East Anglia. There had been multiple wars, including wars that resulted in Anglo-Saxon invasions, and even the death of an East Anglian king. But despite all of that, the status quo still remained. And that seems to have largely happened because any war that was fought against East Anglia tended to also involve Northumbria. They protected each other's flanks. Until now. Following Tetton Hall, all Northumbrian intervention in the south stopped. In that battle, 
Athelflaed and Edward had accomplished the first and the most important task for a Mercian West Saxon war to seize the Danish-controlled kingdoms. They had finally cut East Anglia off from its Northumbrian allies. And actually, there's a good chance that that was what the Raid of Lindsay was all about. But it looks like it was at the Battle of Tenton Hall where that split was fully realized. The ramifications of that would reverberate for quite some time. But the events of this year weren't all good news. In the Anglo-Saxon territories, they were dealing with their own crisis. After a long illness, at last, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, succumbed and died. And he left Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia, and his daughter, Aelfwyn, behind. So right out of the gate, we see that Mercia lacked a male heir that was directly on the line of succession. Furthermore, Athelred's only daughter, Aelfwyn, was still quite young. And this might have had succession crisis written all over it, were it not for two factors. First, this was Mercia, and Mercia had a long history of doing things their own way when it came to rule. Where the other kingdoms of the Heptarchy had a tenuous relationship with women at best, Mercia tended to place a relatively significant amount of importance upon the status of noble women. And on top of this historic and cultural precedent, Athelflaed was already specifically well-known in the halls of mercy and power. She has been appearing in charters for a very long time. Furthermore, when Athelred got sick, she began ruling in his stead. And recently, as conflicts began to flare up with Ingamund and his allies, she's been directly involved in matters of war. And this is the critical part of that. Mercia kept winning those fights. And it wasn't just a Chester. The Raid of Lindsay and the Battle of Tenton Hall were both successes. And while we don't have direct documentary evidence of whether or not she was present at that battle, and that's simply because we weren't told who among the Anglo-Saxons were there at all, the fact remains that these recent victories against the Danes would have further burnished her image. When it comes down to it, Athelflaed was the natural successor to Athelred. And it seems like the Mercians felt the same way. When Athelred died, and Athelflaed took up the mantle of rule, there's no indication of an internal rebellion. No insurgency of the type that Edward had dealt with when he first took the throne. No indications that there was a council of elders who sought to curtail their power, as occasionally happens when a weak monarch takes the throne. Power seemed to have just simply passed to Athelflaed. But there was another kind of difficulty. Upon the death of Athelred, the Chronicle mentions something odd. Quote, King Edward took possession of London and of Oxford and of all the lands which owed obedience thereto. End quote. And then in the following entries, it's clear that Athelflaed has assumed the mantle of rule over the remainder of Anglo-Saxon-controlled Mercia. So, what does this all mean? Well, think back to when Athelred offered his submission to Alfred and when he married Athelflaed at the same time. When that happened, Alfred also gifted London to Athelred. And typically, scholars have taken this to have been part of a marriage deal, or perhaps London and the marriage were part of a deal to establish their alliance and Alfred's overlordship over Mercia. But any way you slice it, the Chronicle was quite clear that London was granted as a gift. And it was an incredibly rich gift given the sheer scale of taxable trade that London Witch and Londonburg could produce. Consequently, 
While the political heart of Mercia was Tamworth, the economic center was London. And yet upon the death of Athelred, all those lands were split from Mercia and claimed by Edward and the Kingdom of Wessex. And then you have the lands to the northwest of London, Oxfordshire. Those were lands that had long been under the command of the Mercians. True, they now abutted Danish-controlled Mercia, but Oxford and the surrounding areas had been Mercian for generations. But all of a sudden, those lands too were claimed by Edward. It makes you raise an eyebrow a bit, doesn't it? And honestly, this can mean a number of different things. London and Oxfordshire were located close to East Anglia, so it is possible that Athelflaed put those holdings under the command of her brother because he could better defend them. That is possible, but I don't think it's likely. And honestly, every time I read a scholar who makes that argument, I see them later making statements that underplay Athelflaed's role in the Danish wars. And many of them often downright erase her involvement from Chester, Lindsay, and Tenton Hall while simultaneously elevating Edward's role. So, while it is possible, I don't think it's particularly likely. After all, if the concern is the border with East Anglia, why would you just give up those lands, but keep the remainder of the borderlands that could easily lead right into the heart of Mercia and to Tamworth? This series of events just doesn't make sense without something else going on. And what I suspect is happening here is that this is yet another example of Anglo-Saxon horse trading. Athelflaed may have had the support of the Mercian people, and she very well might have been a formidable leader. But she still was a woman in the 10th century, and she still had a daughter for her heir. That put her in a weak position. And to complicate that issue, she was also bordering with not just one, but two Danish-occupied kingdoms and the Welsh, she couldn't afford a succession war with Edward. That would simply be too many fronts on this war. And so, my guess is, assurances needed to be made. And to get those assurances, she had to pay for them. Just like Alfred had done so many years earlier. I mean, think back to London. That gift wasn't just because Alfred was feeling generous. The gift and the marriage both have all the hallmarks of a political exchange. Alfred was buying Athelred's support and submission. And honestly, there's something about this that feels very similar. So my read of the situation is that despite the fact that they were a family, and even though they had the bonding experience of defeating the Northumbrians together, Edward was extracting a payment from Athelflaed in exchange for his support. And she agreed. And that's a big deal. Because in recent episodes, I've been pointing out how the subtext in the record suggests that Mercia had a great deal more power than Wessex wanted to admit. And that discussion has led some of you to write in and ask, if that's true, then why do we talk about the House of Wessex and not the House of Mercia? Well, my suspicion is that the ultimate decline of Mercia largely occurred due to the fact that while they had spent the last several decades doing all they could to maneuver themselves into a position where they could challenge the power of Wessex, when Athelred died without a male heir, well, that gave Edward all the opening he needed to begin exerting increasing amounts of power and authority over Mercia. And right out of the gate, he literally seized large portions of land from his sister. But the end result of all of this 
was that Athelflaed continued her rule over Mercia as the Lady of Mercia. And we now have one family holding the reins of power over all the remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Despite any power plays that were going on in the margins, it seems fairly clear that in the early 10th century, one of the major factors that led to the survival of Anglo-Saxon Britain was the fact that their rule was organized into a tight-knit family arrangement. And this deal meant that that family control continued after Athelflaed's ascension. The only real change here that I see is that Mercia's growing ascendancy has faltered, and Wessex was now becoming firmly entrenched as the power center of the South. Now what comes after Athelflaed's ascension to power is a bit murky, unfortunately. In the era of Alfred, we had blow-by-blow accounts of battles. We knew where they were taking place, we knew who was involved, we knew the tactics that were employed. It was a breath of fresh air in many respects, and it's also why I was able to give Alfred such a detailed treatment. But that's not the case here. Many of Edward and Athelflaed's wars against the Danes weren't even recorded as battles. Remember how Chester was broken down to just a construction project? and we had to turn to Ireland to get a better picture of what was going on? Well, same thing here. If you were casually reading the Chronicle, you might get the impression that what was happening next are just a series of infrastructure developments that were so impressive that the Danes were forced to submit. There are the occasional battles, but for the most part, it reads a bit like, Ooh, look at that, Sven. Isn't that a lovely fort? We should join them. That's pretty much what we get from the Chronicle. Now, the Mercian Register, the fragmentary Irish annals, and other records, thankfully, give us a more detailed picture of what was going on. Furthermore, scholars have done a ton of work reconstructing what likely happened and why. So as a consequence, we can create a narrative of the seven or eight years that followed Athelred's death. And it all begins on the same year where Athelflaed took command of Mercia. Quote, on the Holy Eve, called the intervention of the Holy Cross, end quote, is where it begins. And if they were going with a dating that began in 326 CE, that would mean that this all began on May 2nd of 9-11. On that day, Athelflaed marched to Shergate and built a fortress there. But here's the thing. May 2nd is firmly in campaigning season. If you wanted to start a ruckus, You'd want to do it while the weather was good, like in May. So, was this the beginning of a war? Well, the best way to figure that out would be to look at where she was building this fortress. But it turns out that it's a bit of a problem for us because we're not exactly sure where Shergate was. In fact, even the spelling is a bit of a nightmare. S-C-A-E-R-G-E-T-E. Shergate. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we actually have some bigger and better things to cover. But there are two main contenders for Shergate. One is Shersby in Leicestershire. And one is Serrat in Hertfordshire. Now, given that Hertfordshire was firmly in the same territory that had been just snatched from Athelflaed by her brother, I find it hard to believe that she would have been all that eager to start building a fortress for him. Furthermore, I can't imagine that after Edward pulled a stunt like that, he would have been all that eager to allow a Mercian army to walk into his new territory and construct a fortress. What if once they were done building it, 
They marched into that fortress and refused to come back out. So I don't buy that it was in Hertfordshire. Now, Shursby, on the other hand, well, that's right on the border between the heart of Anglo-Saxon Mercia and the so-called Danelaw. The location has all the hallmarks of a useful fortress that would either strengthen the existing Mercian border against the Danish or expand Mercian dominance directly into Danish-controlled lands. So my vote is Shursby. And Shursby seems exactly like the sort of thing that Athelflaed would have done. It also fits within the pattern of the Chronicle talking about wars for territory as minor stories of construction. Because here's the thing. Shursby is about nine miles to the south of one of the famed five boroughs of the Danelaw, Leicester. So functionally, what this probably would be is a frontier outpost, a way to dig in and prepare a future military operation against the five boroughs. And in the meantime, having a manned fortress in that position would definitely lead to Leicester and the other boroughs to think twice before getting involved in what was coming next. And everything that we've seen from Athelflaed so far has suggested that she was an aggressive leader. That was particularly clear in how she handled Ingemund and his army, and then the follow-up raids into Lindsay. So moving into the territory of the five boroughs, or at least marching right up to the border, and then setting down a fort that could protect the inroads that would allow a Danish army to march on Tamworth, seems exactly like the kind of move that a leader like Athelflaed would make. But she wasn't content to stop with a fortress at Shergate, which I think was Shearsby. After that, on the same year, she gathered her forces and turned west and moved on Bridge North. Now, Bridge North is located on the Severn and midway along the Mercian border with Wales. And it actually isn't the first time that it's come up in our story, as it was the crossing at Bridge North that has caused serious problems for Viking raiders including Haston himself. Bridge North, like Shursby, was well-positioned to control and hamper any armies that might be foolish enough to march or sail upon Mercia. And one look at a map suggests that Athelflaed was likely looking to do exactly that. By reinforcing Bridge North, she was bolstering her defenses along the Welsh border, as well as strengthening the defenses along the Severn. And should any Danes choose to raid along the Riverlands, they would find themselves in quite a bit of trouble. So, in a single year, even though she'd lost large portions of Mercian lands in and around London, ostensibly in order to maintain peace and secure her ascension, Athelflaed was still proving to be an energetic leader, and she had marshaled the resources of Mercia to carry out two large-scale public works projects that were designed to protect Mercia's western and eastern flanks. And if it really was Shearsby, she might have also been fighting off any forces that were sent out of Leicester while the construction was underway. Let history make no mistake, Athelflaed was her father's daughter. And she's only just getting started. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can find all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>